Would you pray with me? Lord, would you open our hearts to your word this morning and speak to us that we may live for you in the fullness of what that means for us today. We ask this in your name. Amen. If you have a family, often what makes a family family are your shared activities together, the shared moments, right? You maybe have a special meals or things you do on birthdays or anniversaries, or maybe you have Christmas traditions, or you have things you do each summer maybe, or winter, maybe you go fishing or you go hunting, or you're involved in hockey together or something else, conscious or not, these are part of family life together. We have favorite foods. I have favorite foods. There's favorite stories. There's favorite shared memories. Remember one Christmas, uh, my uncle looked up from his plate of turkey and everything that was prepared, the feast, and said, I like this family. We eat. I was like, I agree with you. <laughs> the early church had a similar thing. They, they referred to themselves as family, right? Brothers and sisters. And they had conscious favorite activities, things they would do together that were part of their shared family life together. And Luke pauses the action of Acts to emphasize the things that the church did together in this first portion of Scripture that Rob read for us this morning. Four things in total that are often emphasized in verse 42. Two pairs of two, and I know I've preached on these before, but they're worth drawing our attention to again. Four things in verse 42, and then the rest of the chapter fills out their life together. And so the grounding things, the first things, are the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, and then the rest fills it out, right? You've got generosity and giving and signs and wonders, and it seems like really joyful gatherings in their homes, right? That's kind of the sense you get. There's healing, there's prayer going on, but these first four get the focus that they devoted themselves to these four. They held fast to these four. They persevered in these four things. And as you do that, as the church does, as this church does it, as we do it, as you persevere in those four things, this is the sort of life that flows out of that, the rest of the chapter. And just as these uh, practices are what made them a family, these four are also indicators of, of a healthy church body. You could think of them as signs of life, as the, as the vitals, like your body temperature and your pulse and your, your breathing rate, right? And your blood pressure, for instance, right? So I want to talk about the, the healthy signs of church life and the sort of life that God invites us into in this passage. Sometimes it's easy to feel that church is just unnecessary or it's unimportant, but Jesus calls us together to be a family. That's God's heart for you as a Christian, as you are part of a family. And these are the sorts of things that we do when we gather as a family. So the first, the first family practice, the first sign of life in verse 42, is the apostles' teaching. 
They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? The apostles are taught and trained by Jesus. Jesus is the uh, the one who's authorized the apostles to convey the truth of who he is. And for us in later generations, we have the written deposit of the apostles' teaching in the New Testament, right? These documents have passed the test as faithfully conveying the apostles' teaching. They're not put together willy-nilly. They are scrutinized to be uh, 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 discerned as a faithful record of the apostles' teaching. And when the apostles finished writing and eventually passed away, we, uh, we know the canon of Scripture is, is now closed. We don't add more books to the Bible. We're done. It's finished. Because any new books, any new writings would not meet the basic qualification of being attached to an eyewitness of Jesus. That's why it's closed. And that's also why you always ensure when there's a prophetic word that happens or someone says, I received this vision from God, or, or even uh, someone writes a letter, you know, similar to Paul writing a letter, we always make sure that's aligned with Scripture. If it's not keeping with the apostles' teaching, it can be safely dismissed. And when church leaders start to fall away from Scripture as the authoritative standard for life and faith and doctrine, that raises red flags. That one is no longer devoted to the apostles' teaching. And so what's the the first sign of healthy church life is we are devoted to God's Word. We persevere in it. We make it the focus, a focus, a primary focus in our gathering. What's the second one? Is the fellowship. The fellowship refers to the community that is formed by their shared experience of Jesus and the Spirit. The early church is very diverse. You had initially Jews only, but Jews of various cultural and ethnic backgrounds who lived in different areas coming to faith and coming together. And then soon after, you have the Gentile believers. And so you have what in some cases for the first time was a gathering that would happen with people from across socioeconomic lines, across class lines, coming together, across racial lines, coming together. And the, the thing that united them was their shared faith in Jesus. And it's worth remembering that the church is not uh, a race-based or socioeconomic-based institution. The church is the gathered people of God from any and all people groups who share in the experience of salvation and relationship in Jesus. What unites us together is not our paychecks, It's not our backgrounds. It's not the color of our skin. What unites us together in this place is because we have faith in the risen Lord Jesus. And that has been extended to each and every one of us. In fact, it's the most important thing in our lives is our faith in Christ. Not so much our shared... In fact, we might not have a lot of shared interests. I mean, I know that we do. But at the end of the day, the thing that makes... This church, a church, is our sharing in Jesus. Romans 3, 9, and 23 says, All people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short 
of God's glorious standard. And so what unites us is our shared repentance of our sin and believing in Jesus, that we can be reconciled and forgiven together through him. That's what unites us as brothers and sisters. Third, the early church, the early Christians devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, people wonder, is this the Lord's Supper or is this like just sharing food together? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's, it's both. It's likely both. Communion often happened in the context of a larger meal. And breaking bread carries that connection back to when Jesus, in the upper room at the Last Supper, took bread and gave thanks and, and broke it and gave it to the disciples, right? It reminds us also of the Emmaus Road at the end of Luke when the resurrected Jesus comes alongside the disciples in their grief and teaches them from the word that God sent his son to suffer and they recognize him then in the breaking of the bread. And so in that sense, whenever bread is broken and shared with other believers, we do so in remembrance of Jesus. We do so remembering him. They would have gathered on Sundays weekly, but they're also in their houses often. You get this sense. They're like hanging out in each other's houses fairly frequently. And so they would have celebrated communion at least weekly, but probably more often. You know, have you ever considered, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but that for you to live, something has to die? For your life to be sustained, whether it's the animal that we eat or the vegetables and the grain that we harvest, we are only sustained physically by something giving its life for you. And for us to live, to, ongoing, to live ongoingly, Something has to die, and we eat in order to live. It's good for us to remember that God's made it this way. And that's why Jesus can say that his body and his blood are like true bread and true wine. He's the one who ultimately lays down his own life so that we can truly live. It's the ultimate meal. And we can feed on him in some mysterious way through our faith and through this symbolic table, right? Remembering that our lives are sustained, not just by the food I eat for lunch, but they're sustained ultimately by the death and resurrection of Jesus who gave himself body and blood for the life of the world. So we break bread together. And fourth, the prayers. In the NIV, it's translated singular as prayer, but I, I like that the ESV properly, I would say, translates it as prayers, plural, because it refers to the set times of regular prayer. In fact, we see in the beginning of chapter 3, right? Peter and John are heading over to the temple at the set time to go pray. Uh, devout Jews kept those times. There's kind of three times a day. Uh, and so did the Jewish apostles. And of course, prayer is central to our lives. We may not have a set time of day where you go pray. Maybe you do. I don't, for instance. I kind of just pray throughout the day. It's just sort of part of my, part of my day. But it's obviously central. If we're not in prayer, if we are not in communion with God in prayer, our vitals are failing, right? This is the, the oxygen of our faith. So these four things, apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and the prayers, I feel like 
I feel like with COVID and with social distancing and all the rest, you can continue somewhat in the apostles' teaching, right? There's lots that you could go listen to or read or or whatever. And you can continue somewhat in prayer, kind of just individually. But man, it's really hard to have sort of embodied fellowship together, right? <laughs> and to eat real bread together. And it, it just serves as a good reminder to us that we're embodied beings. We're meant to be physically present to each other. It's part of how God's designed us. And we're called to participate in the life of the church, to be part of this community together, not just to consume Christian content, but to actually be part of it. Jesus doesn't want you to just watch Christians the way you might watch a hockey game. He wants you to actually live the life together. Uh, One author puts it this way. He says, the Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. God calls us to life together. And when church is difficult to do, which it often is when we have issues with someone or, or questions arise about a doctrine, we're to go to each other, go to that person and actually talk about it. Imagine going to the person that we have a problem with or who's, who's hurt you and actually trying to sort it out. This novel idea. It seems so obvious, and yet it's, it's actually kind of hard to do sometimes, isn't it? We don't just stop coming to church. We try to reconcile with the person. I so appreciated a couple weeks ago, a, a woman approached me asking me about a, an aspect of, of my own theology and the church's beliefs and whatnot. We had a great conversation about it. It wasn't difficult. It wasn't full of angst or fear or anything. We just talked it through. But it seems quite clear that we, we fool ourselves if we think we can be great Christians and not be part of the fellowship of believers. It's just not Jesus' design for us. It's God's idea to have the church, not, not ours. In fact, if it was our plan, we probably wouldn't because it's really hard to do to be with people, Right? and deal with each other and all of our quirks and all of our issues. But this is God's idea to grow us together, to reflect the diversity of his creation uh, and how he loves all of us. And we all play a part in the body. Now, what kind of life grows out of this? And I think it's, it's so cool how, how in Luke we see this sort of core life that they lived and then, and then there's a few things that get emphasized. You get um, the selling, verse 45, you get the selling of their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds as any had need. And then in verse 46, we, we get uh, that they're meeting, often breaking bread in their homes and receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. I think that's, so, that's such a great line. And then an extended section on the lame beggar being healed, right? When it comes to generosity, these are, again, the marks of the church when our vital signs are healthy. When it comes to generosity, some people read this passage and go, oh, it's like an early kind of communism, right? Like they're just sharing all their stuff. Um, That's just not not really true. Um, They are voluntarily giving up their personal possessions. They're not being forced by the state to give them up, right? This isn't government-mandated abdication of your private property going on. Uh, other Jewish groups at the time 
actually did require you to give up your possessions to be part of it. So what you've got here is the church choosing voluntarily to give up something and, and you know, rather than selling and giving out of obligation because they actually deeply love each other, they choose to give up of their wealth to care for the body. It's actually worth noting in the, in the Greek world, in the Roman world, uh, it wasn't a virtue to care for the poor. There was no, like, government social programs. That was not a thing. You just, you didn't care for the poor. There was no kind of compassion for those that weren't well. Um, that idea of caring for those in need comes from the influence of, of the Judeo-Christian worldview in Western civilization. The idea today that the government would have programs to help support people comes from the long history of Christians' influence in Western culture. That's, that's part of our heritage, is that, that compassion. In, I mean, it's flawed in many ways, but that compassion to care for others is actually kind of built in to how we think about how society should function now, right? They share their possessions. Makes me think, well, who am I to bless with my possessions, right? And they shared meals together. Of course, we talked about this already. Typically, you would eat only with your class, right? You think of like Downton Abbey or something where you've got the rich people upstairs and the poor servants downstairs. But in church, everybody just gets together and has a seat at the table. It's this kind of beautiful, really radical thing that they were doing. In fact, it looks a lot like Jesus, right? Because Jesus practiced this really radical open table fellowship where he would eat with people from across class lines that didn't make sense and made people upset quite often, right? But it was the way of him announcing the coming of God's kingdom that people eat and drink together with God. And then this healing, this extended section on the presence of the Spirit, uh, the healing, the signs and wonders that flow out of this life together. But notice we just had a section on how they could have, like how they do have money to give to poor people, but then they don't. Isn't that interesting? Like apparently they would do this. They'd sell possessions, give it away to the poor. But when they come across this guy, they don't do that. The church is willing to share resources, but Peter doesn't give the man money because the money is not the main focus. The money is not what's going to just solve your problems. Throwing money at this guy, throwing more sort of social programs at this guy isn't the answer. The guy doesn't need more money. The guy doesn't need just more assistance. The guy needs an encounter with Jesus Christ. And the apostles facilitate that encounter for him. This is a good idea, I think, of what Christian compassion can look like. We do what we do. We do what we can do, right, in the name of Jesus. We give or we support. We respond to the willingness of the needs around us, but at the end of the day, people need to come into faith with Jesus. That's what makes the difference. I remember chatting with Steve over at Adult and Teen Challenge, and, and we were talking about how at the end of the day, we know the answer, and the answer is people need Jesus. This is what changes lives. He changes lives. And notice... Peter says, after the healing, this is so important because I think we get so kind of tied up in this. Look at verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12. When the people start to surround them, Peter says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety, 
we made him walk. See, living out the life of the Spirit or living out the life of the church as we find here is not about being super holier than thou. Peter says it's not about our piety. Piety would be your own kind of personal godliness or holiness, whatever you might (laughs) kind of think you measure on that sort of scale, right? Peter says it was not about that. It wasn't about our piety. It wasn't even about our own power. It's not like I had some kind of special reservoir of Holy Spirit power that I kind of to get that guy healed. He's No, it wasn't us. Why do you stare at us? It's not by our power or our godliness that this man walks. God's the healer, not Peter. Right? Wasn't me, says Peter. But God does call Peter to participate in what God wants to do. And so through Peter, God extends his healing and his life to others. But man, that's a good check for us, hey? This isn't about me needing to get super, super holy before I can participate in what God would want me to do. This isn't about me drumming myself up emotionally to feel a certain special feeling before God can make, call me to do what he calls me to do. No. It's not about that. Yes, we're called to live faithfully for him. I mean, they're, they're going off to pray. So Christ is central in their lives. But out of that place, they are then able to minister to the needs around them. Not because they're extra special, but because entirely of Jesus. And then notice what happens. Peter takes the opportunity of the healing to preach. Just like last week, he took the opportunity of the speaking in tongue sign to preach. Right? He strikes while the iron is hot. And he preaches the gospel to the people. And what's the main thing? He calls them to repentance and faith in Jesus. And he doesn't hold back any punches. He says, you killed the author of life. You did. It's pretty, it's a bit intense, right? You killed the author of life. And it's faith in Jesus, verse 16, is what has made this man perfectly well, back to perfect health. Therefore, he says, verse 19, repent and turn back for your sins may be blotted out. And why on earth would you want that? Verse 20, so you can receive times of refreshing. You need refreshing in your life? Repent. Confess your sins. Come to Jesus. Make him the center of your life. Like we we sang this morning. And receive from God the refreshing of his presence through the Son. Think of Isaiah who looked forward to a future time when the lame would leap like a deer, Isaiah 35. What this man experiences, the lame man, isn't just healing for his legs. It's a healing for his heart. He doesn't just get up and walk away and leave. He comes in rejoicing and praising God. Because that hoped-for future restoration had started in his life that very day, then and now. And the healing of his legs led to a wholeness in Christ. Now, when we zoom out from this whole passage, notice, notice the sorts of things that are bound together here. We find an emphasis on the word. 
the apostles' teaching. We find an emphasis on the breaking of bread together, the table, and we find an emphasis on the life of the Spirit in the healing of the, of the lame man. There's essentially three kind of large categories of Christian churches, you could say. There's the evangelical, that emphasize the priority of Scripture and conversion. There's the, the more liturgical or sacramental, we would say, that emphasize baptism and communion. And then there's the Pentecostal, that emphasize an immediate experience of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts, isn't it interesting that we find the church is not just one of those strands, but takes all three strands and interweaves them together. What we find here about the church is they're people of the word. They're people of the table. And they're people of the spirit. And all three strands are present in what Luke describes as a healthy church. When we're without the word, we're ungrounded. We run into all kinds of trouble. We can get easily drawn away by false teaching. We can be vulnerable to a a shallow faith. Without the table, we make our faith private. We neglect that we're part of one body. Without the spirit, we're left with the scraps of man-made religion. We struggle to be faithful to Jesus just on our own strength, but forget that God is speaking and living within us and working through us. And so as we gather and look at the life of the early church, I want us to commit this morning that we would be a community of the word, that we would be committed to apostolic teaching and to discipleship, that we would be a community of the table, gathering as baptized believers and breaking bread together, and we would also be a community of the spirit where we are alive and empowered by the presence of God for healing and for prophecy and for his life within us. And so I want to encourage us, let's commit as we regather as a church this fall, let's commit to living out the fullness of what church is, hey? Let's commit to putting those first things first and letting the life that flows out of that, the generosity the signs and wonders, the care for people, the joy of gathering together. Let's let that flow out of our shared community life. That's what God calls us to. Not just for ourselves, but so we can invite others into that life as well. So as we come to the table, let's pray that uh, the Lord would remind us afresh of the goodness of the life of the church that he's given us, of the joy that's here and of the power of the Spirit that he calls us to walk in as we go about our days. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Jesus, that you would help us to make it a priority in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this table that we can gather in fellowship and break bread together in remembrance of who you are and what you've done. Lord, we thank you for the anointing and power of your Holy Spirit, and we just pray for a fresh infilling for our body. Lord, that you empower us, not because of our piety or because of our own power, but simply through you and your life within us, that you would empower us to share the gospel and the good news with those around us, both in word and in deed. 
in extending healing and life to those that need it, Lord, and calling people to faith in you. We thank you, Jesus, uh, for the fullness of life that you call us to as a church family. We just pray in this season as COVID continues on and we wonder about what exactly the future will look like as we think about the upcoming election and what is going on in our own country, in our city. Jesus, we pray that you would guide and direct the thoughts and the leaders of our land. Lord, that you would help us as your church to be a faithful witness of who you are and to extend your compassion and your grace and your life to those around us. We pray, Lord, that whatever would come, you would help us to keep you at the center of our lives and help us to continue on and to persevere in these, in these things that, that your early church devoted themselves in, to your word, to fellowship, to breaking bread, to prayer, and the life of the Spirit that flows out of that deep life. Lord, if we're to be in mission to others, we need to be people who are deep, deep in you. Lord, would you do that work in us this morning as we come to this table? We ask in your name. Amen.